please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we begin, I want to just uh, take care of a couple of uh, family matters here. Uh, the first is um, we're happy to have uh, Gail Squire with us. Where is she? Right in the right down the center. So uh, it's been, uh, I think, about eight or nine weeks since your fall. And uh, so this is her first Sunday back with us. And uh, so exercise caution because EJ is pushing the wheelchair. All right. So I uh, want to be want to be careful about that, but it's really good to have you with us, and uh, you, she was in Ohio for a while, and, and now back in Michigan, and so we're uh, being, we're, we were in prayer for you, and uh, we're delighted that you're with us. Uh, the second thing I want you to know, you'll probably notice that the, the men in here are a lot more manly than they were last week. Uh, last night, we had Redeeming Manhood, uh, just a tremendous cur- encouragement, time to be together, uh, listen to the scriptures uh, taught, and uh, so I wanted to let you know we do have uh, we are planning to do a redeeming wom- womanhood here in the next couple of months and uh, have a guest speaker that I'm really excited about uh, having come and minister to our ladies. And so uh, that, should, uh, that should be announced here soon. Uh, but look forward to the opportunity we have to, um, to gather our ladies together in a format that has been uh, extremely encouraging for our men. Well, let's, uh, as we hear First 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we are... Uh, slowly bringing this book to a conclusion, and uh, we're going to look at verses 16, 17, and 18 this morning as we prepare for the Thanksgiving season. But let's read beginning of verse 12 uh, down to the end of the chapter so we understand the context in which these verses fall. First Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's our privilege to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning and to turn our attention to the, to the truths of Scripture. We've been blessed already to turn our attention to the truths that we've sung And our hearts are encouraged by a reminder of your faithfulness. Uh, Whether it is good times or bad times, we're reminded of the fact that you are good, true, faithful, and that we have a God in whom we can rest in the midst of life's trials and difficulties. Lord, what we need this morning is to be built up by the truth. We don't want to be believers who are tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but we want to stand firmly on the truth, confident in 
in your goodness and sufficiency for our lives. And Lord, what we consider this morning are familiar reminders, but they're reminders that we need nonetheless. Because the more familiar we become with some of these things, the easier it becomes to set them aside and to not make them a priority in our lives. So give us the grace this morning to understand these truths and to apply them afresh in our lives today. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, you've repented of your sins and you've believed in the gospel of Christ, then you are on a journey of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And we often refer to this journey as progressive sanctification. Uh, Progressive because it happens progressively, not instantaneously, although we have all wished that it would happen instantaneously and not progressively. And we refer to it as sanctification because we are becoming more sanctified or holy as Christ our Lord is holy. And this is the path that every believer is on between their initial salvation and their final glorification when Christ either calls us home or or takes us home. Uh, We are on the path of becoming more like Christ. Now, in our progressive sanctification, God is at work to bring every area of our life under the lordship of Christ. So, not just our actions, but our thoughts and our attitudes, our responses, our desires, the inclinations of our heart, all of our personhood is to be in the process of being sanctified uh, on this journey. In fact, this is what Paul means when he prays this final prayer in verse 23, and he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So So the goal in sanctification is that we look more like Christ in the entirety of our personhood. Now, If we're honest with ourselves, we are sometimes content to limit our sanctification to just the outer man. Like as long as we can appear to be godly, and as long as the outer man gives the impression that we're godly, well then we can be relatively satisfied. But the inner man, the the portion of our personhood that no one sees, we're content to sometimes wallow in the sin of the old man. And this is not a new phenomenon, right? It's as it's as it's as common as it's as it's as old as the first family. When Cain offered a sacrifice that failed to please the Lord, he was happy to make an external show of religion, but his heart was not inclined toward God. And the same can be true of you and me. We're content. To, to redress the outside, while at the same time giving little thought or care to see God renovate the interior of our lives. But this is not what sanctification is. Sanctification is a renewal of the entire person, bringing every aspect of our life into conformity with Christ so that we're seeking to look more like Christ both internally and externally. Or we might say, first internally, And then the result is externally as well. And the reason I remind us of this reality this morning is because as we come to our passage in verses 16, 17, and 18, 
the Apostle Paul addresses three aspects of our sanctification that are fundamentally internal before they're ever expressed externally. And these three aspects is that are found in verses 16 to 18, and they are to be the inner posture of our heart. And you'll notice them here, they are these three. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Okay? These three qualities are to mark our lives as believers. But if sanctification is only a, a facelift of the, of the exterior man, then we'll look at these commands and we'll think, yeah, these are just not that important for me. But if we're convinced that sanctification is a renewal of the whole personhood, then, then we're going to be saying, yes, Lord, no matter how difficult, teach me these qualities and let me demonstrate these qualities in my life. Let me strive to make these the posture of my heart. So here's what we learned from this passage this morning. God's will for believers is that they be marked by constant joy, prayer, and thanksgiving in all circumstances. Okay, so God's will for believers is that they be marked by constant prayer, or joy, prayer, and thanksgiving in all circumstances. Now, as we walk through these three short verses, and perhaps you remember as a kid, you know, in the Awana program, they said if you can say a verse, you'll get a piece of candy. And you committed these verses to memory because it was easy to say rejoice evermore or pray without ceasing, and you could easily obtain uh, a piece of candy. Okay, well, these are helpful for that if you need candy. But these are also helpful for our sanctification as well. So as we look at these three short verses, I want to walk through them, but I want to do so in reverse order. Okay, so the, the, the passage reads like this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But I want to take that first, for that last phrase and consider it first. So we'll walk through the passage in reverse order in that way, looking first at this aspect of, of God's will in this passage. Okay, this is God's will for our life, namely consistent joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. So first of all, let's see this. God's will is his desire for believers as revealed in Scripture. Okay, God's will is his desire for believers as revealed in Scripture. Now, we begin looking at this last phrase in order to bring clarity to this matter of God's will. And we won't spend a ton of time here because we've already addressed this matter in chapter 4 and verse 3 when we read that this is the will of God, your sanctification. And here we read something similar that always rejoicing and constantly praying and giving thanks in all circumstances is the will of God for our lives. Now what we've noted about this concept of the will of God is that the expression will of God can be used in two different ways in the Scriptures. And the context is always the indicator as to how this phrase, will of God, is being used. So it can first refer to God's decreed will. Okay? When we see God's will used in Scripture, it can, be, it can refer to God's decreed will. So we're speaking of God's decreed will, we're speaking of that which He has planned or ordained from before the foundation of the world. In other words, God has a plan, and he is in the process of working all that happens. He's working it out according to his 
sovereign and decreed plan. He's accomplishing all things according to his will. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, in him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him. And it says this, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now there's a lot that could be said about the, the decreed will of God. But for this morning's discussion, I just want to note two things about God's decreed will. The first thing we need to note is that it is secret. You and I do not know what God's will or plan is. Now, once it happens, we know that it was God's sovereign will. But before it happens, we don't know. So it is, it is secret. And secondly, the thing we need to know about God's decreed will is that it always happens. Okay? He always accomplishes his purpose or plan, and nothing can stay his hand or keep him from accomplishing his will, as Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of Daniel chapter 4. Okay, so that's God's decreed will. Okay? It's his sovereign plan, it's secret, and it always happens. But secondly, we look at God's desired will. Okay, so sometimes in Scripture, we see the phrase will of God, and it speaks of not his decreed will, but his desired will. And when we speak of his desired will, we're speaking of that will that God has revealed on the pages of Scripture in which he desires all mankind to obey. Okay, so for example, in this particular passage, it's God's will that we rejoice always, that we pray without ceasing, and that we give thanks in all circumstances. Okay, this is his revealed will on the pages of Scripture. Now, just like God's decreed will, there are a lot of things that could be said about his desired will. But for our discussion this morning, we just want to note two things. Number one, God's desired will, it's not secret, but it's revealed. Okay, when, when we open the pages of Scripture, we, we read God's revealed will to us. The second thing we need to know is that God's will, his, his desired will, it doesn't always happen. Right? So his desired will is that we would rejoice always, that we would give thanks in all circumstances. But let's be honest, we don't always rejoice and we don't always give thanks in all circumstances. We fail in that sense to, to accomplish or to obey God's will. So let's step back for a minute and notice then the, the, the difference between these two and what our responses are. So in God's decreed will, since we don't know what it is, but we know that it always happens... All we can do is step back and trust in God that he's accomplishing this. And we leave room for God's will in our planning. Right? You remember James chapter 4? Come now, you who say tomorrow we're going to go and do buy and sell and make a profit. And he says, he says if, what you should say is, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Okay? They leave room for, for God's sovereign will or his decreed will in their plans. Now, with God's desired will or his revealed will, well, we have the responsibility to obey that aspect of God's will. Okay, so hopefully this, this, makes, uh, this is making sense so far. Now, there's a third way that believers use the phrase will of God, and I would submit that it's neither biblical nor helpful, but it is popular. And that is to speak of God's will of direction. And when people speak of God's will of direction, they're, they're speaking of, of this aspect of, of discerning God's will for 
life's major decisions. So like, where should I go to college, or, or what should I do for a career, or who should I marry, or should I buy this house, or, or that house? And in this sense, we would say God's will cannot be found in the Scriptures. Rather, it has to be discovered through a combination of open doors or inner promptings or interpreting the signs correctly or a number of other ways. So just as a side note, the Lord's not going to reveal to you who you should marry. All right? Now, he's going to say certain things in his revealed will. Right? He's, he's, that's the, the type of person you're supposed to marry. Right? You're supposed to marry someone of the opposite sex. That's pretty clear in God's revealed will. They, are, they should be a believer if, if you are a believer. They should be someone who affirms all that the Bible teaches about the family. So he's going to give certain parameters for that decision, but then the Lord is going to allow you the freedom to choose who you want to marry. Except for my daughter, the Lord has given me the freedom to choose for her. Uh, who she wants to marry. And for the boys, it's like, well, the first person that comes along, you know, you might not have a lot of options. So, uh, so go, ahead and, uh, go ahead and marry soon. Okay, so, so the Lord gives us certain parameters, but then within those parameters, he gives the freedom to make these decisions. Now, there are a number of problems with this third use of God's will, this God, what we call God's will of direction. And we're not gonna take the time to discuss them this morning, but, but one of the main concerns with this view is that believers can become more preoccupied with finding God's will, while at the same time they, they ignore the, the plain and clear commands of Scripture and, and, and the duty of, of doing His will. Okay, so they become preoccupied with finding God's will rather than doing His will. Okay, so so they, they stress over should I buy this house or should I buy this car because they want to know that this decision is going to be met with God's approval while at the same time disregarding many, many commands of Scripture that God has clearly given us in order that we might obey His revealed will. It's in this sense that I think Deuteronomy 29, 29 is helpful when it says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Okay, so we trust in God's sovereign will, His decreed will, but we give ourselves to obey His will that He has revealed in Scripture. So, this passage this morning is referring to these aspects of sanctification, that it is God's will that we rejoice always, that we pray without ceasing, and that we give thanks in all circumstances. But anytime we see this phrase, God's will in Scripture, it really doesn't matter what follows it. Our ears should perk up. Our desire should be that whatever follows that expression, this is God's will, that we're committed to it. Because after all, this is what He desires of of you and I as believers seeking to be sanctified in our whole person. Okay, so in this particular case, the will of God is our growth in joy, prayer, and, and thanks. So that moves us to our second point this morning. We see this, that God's will for believers is that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Now before we unpack each 
one of these commands separately. Let's note a few things about them as a whole. Okay, so first, I believe that all three of these are part of God's will for believers. Right? So the, the text seems to indicate and give the impression that only the third command is God's will. So give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. But grammatically, the way this, this, these verses are, are tied together, it's better to speak of rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances as being all three together part of God's will. The second thing we need to note about these three commands is that there's a description attached to each one of them. So he says, we are to rejoice always, and we are to pray without ceasing, and we are to give thanks in all circumstances. But here's the interesting thing. If you were to read this sentence in Greek, these modifiers come emphatically up front. So the passage literally reads like this, always rejoice, without ceasing pray, and in all circumstances give thanks. So we might say that the passage isn't simply about being joyful, prayerful, or thankful, but rather the emphasis of the passage is on the constancy and the consistency of our joy, our prayer, and our our thankfulness. Now thirdly, note that these are commands. Okay, These are commands to rejoice always and, and pray without ceasing and to give thanks in all circumstances, which means that you and I have the responsibility to see these virtues played out in our life. In other words, we have to put forth the effort to see joy characterized in our life. Or we have to sometimes choose joy. Or choose prayer. Or we have to make the choice and and, and give our responsible participation to being thankful in all circumstances. That that you and I are not passive in the process and these things just naturally flow flow through us, but rather we're to give ourselves to them. He commands us to obey these things. So to a degree, our of sanctifying us and of cultivating these virtues in our lives... And it involves our responsible participation, but God is the initiator of these works in our lives. But he doesn't do it apart from our responsible participation. So being joyful, prayerful, and thankful is not simply you and me pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but it's God who is at work in our heart to faithfully bring these things to pass in our life. That's what the work of progressive sanctification is. It's why Paul, with such confidence, says in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began the work will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ because he's the one who does the work and the initiation in our lives. Now, with that lengthy sort of introduction to these three commands, let's look at them together. Rejoice always is the first one. Rejoice always. Now think about it. This is a staggering command given the context. Okay, this is a staggering command given the context. So, so you know, and as we've studied throughout this, this letter, it's abundantly clear that these believers are in the midst of facing intense persecution, 
since day one of coming to Christ, persecution has been hot on their heels. To the extent that the Apostle Paul has to leave Thessalonica early for fear of his own life. In fact, turn back to chapter 2 in verses 14 to 15, just so I can remind you what he says about these believers. Okay, in 2.14, he says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, if you just stop there, you think, well, this is a good thing. They're imitating the early church in Jerusalem. But he continues, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both Jesus, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Okay, so the way in which they had become imitators of the church in Jerusalem was that they were receiving the same type of persecution, right? So you remember as the, as the early church was, was, was founded and the apostles began to proclaim the gospel, there was instant hostility against them. To the point that eventually Stephen is the first one killed. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, believers are dispersing from the area because of of persecution. And Paul's saying, you church in Thessalonica were were imitators of these churches in Jerusalem because you faced the same type of persecution. So amid all this persecution then, Paul in, in some strange way finishes this letter by saying, Oh, and by the way, rejoice always, for this is the will of God. And it's like, well, hang on, Paul. Have you not forgotten the persecution that they're under? And you're going to finish off this, this, this exhortation by saying, rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances? I mean, how can Paul give such a command to rejoice in the midst of these circumstances? Well, I think we learned something extremely important here about this command in this context. And it's this. That joy must mean something other than happiness. Okay, joy must mean something other than happiness. The mistake we can make is to think about joy and and equate it with happiness as if it's the same thing. As if, like, the, well, the mindset of the Bible is that I'm, I'm supposed to be joyful. That means I should always be bubbly and always be cheerful all the time, no matter life's circumstances. Kind of like the character Joy on the movie Inside Out, right? She's a glass half full kind of person, always has a smile on her face. Even if things aren't okay, she's faking like it's okay, and she does so. And we think we have to do so because the Bible says we're to rejoice always. But I don't think that's what the Bible's speaking about when it speaks of Christian joy. Rather, let me see if I can submit a a helpful definition of what biblical or Christian joy is. Okay, Christian joy is a settled, contented, and encouraged disposition of the heart produced by the Holy Spirit that is anchored to spiritual realities, not earthly circumstances. Okay, let me read that again. 
just transfer back to seventh grade when the teacher's like, well, let me give you notes, and you write this down, and then she says it, like, way too fast, and you're like, I can't write that down, so you fail the test, and life goes on, okay. Right, so Christian joy is a settled, contented, and encouraged disposition of the heart produced by the Holy Spirit that is anchored to spiritual realities, not earthly circumstances. Okay, so let me just break down this definition for us quickly. It is a settled, contented, and encouraged disposition of the heart. So it's not necessarily happiness, although it might get expressed in happiness. But it's a, a settled contentment, settled content condition of, of the soul. And it's not something that starts in our physical body, but it starts in our inner man. Okay, that we have this contented disposition in, in, in Christ. And it may result in physical responses like tears of joy or, or a smile, but it's first internal. It takes place in our heart. It's a disposition of the heart. But it's also a fruit of the Spirit. Right? So Galatians 5 is very clear in this. It says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So it, 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 at times it's unexplainable how believers can be joyful in certain circumstances. And the only explanation is, well, that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit is at work to cultivate joy in our lives in these circumstances. So when a family has a new baby, it's easy to see how joy is the natural response because it's, it's natural to be excited about something like that. But when a family loses a loved one and they demonstrate a settled and contented and encouraged disposition in the midst of their loss, and we, we wonder, how can this be? Well, it's that the Spirit is at work to do something that is supernatural, to produce a settled contentment in, 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 in the times of, of, of difficulty and pain. So it's a work of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And the last aspect of our definition is that it's anchored to spiritual realities, not earthly circumstances. Right? If, if, our, if our joy is anchored to our circumstances, well, then our joy will, will go up and down like something like a roller coaster. But if it's anchored to spiritual realities, then that means that it's possible for us to be joyful in the midst of hardship. So notice a few passages that tie our joy to spiritual realities. Right? So Romans chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Okay, so here the, constant of, the, the content of our joy is tied to the hope we have in Christ. You'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here's what he says next. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So there Jesus ties our joy to a future reward in heaven. So joy in the midst of difficult circumstances because of eternal realities. Another verse that doesn't have joy connected to it, but I think it, it, it's the grounds of our joy. Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, so we can have joy because they're anchored to eternal realities not our earthly circumstances. Now let me be clear. The scriptures never encourage 
denial of life's sorrows and griefs. Okay, we don't want to draw a, a hard and fast contrast between these two things as if they both can't exist. Okay? We're not told in Scripture to ignore pain or, or loss or, or heartache as if it never happened. There's nothing super spiritual about keeping a stiff upper lip in the face of loss. But what the Scriptures do recognize is the possibility of joy in the midst of pain because our joy is anchored to eternal realities. That we can have this settled, contented, and encouraged disposition in the face of pain. So we're in 1 Thessalonians 5. You just go back to chapter 4. And he says, but we don't want you, in verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay, so there's, there's, a, there's a grief with hope and there's a grief without hope. So in the same passage where he's saying it's okay to grieve, he's also saying we should rejoice always. Okay, so these two things are, are happening at the same time. Perhaps the, the clearest example of this is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would turn over there. 1 Peter chapter 1. And, and start in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now listen to this, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So it's possible to be experiencing grief over various trials and to rejoice in the eternal realities of this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven by us, or by God, through God's power. So it's impossible to have both grief and joy existing at the same time. So when Paul says rejoice always, it's, it's, we can do so because our, our joy is connected to the hope we have of all that Christ has done, is doing, and will do in the life of the believer. Now, let me just share my heart on one particular issue, and I think this is a helpful application or illustration. I think we are right to be concerned over the direction of our current society. It seems like it's getting pretty bad, but sometimes I wonder, like, is it getting bad or am I just getting old? All right, and so... Sometimes it's tough to tell. I think it's getting bad, though. Okay, I think that's what's, that's what's happening. And we have that feeling that all older people come to, like, what, you know, what is the world coming to? Okay. Even the results of this past week's election, they indicate the moral decline of, of society. But here's my concern. If unbelievers were to eavesdrop on conversations with believers, 
as they talk about the moral decline of society. I'm afraid they would get the impression that all of our hope is anchored to this world and the success of, of, of this world. So that if this, if this ship sinks, then all of our hopes and dreams sink along with it. Because what marks most of our conversations, and I include myself on this, is lament and complaint about the way things are. And what seldom appears in the conversation is a steadfast joy and confidence that, yeah, this is happening, but simultaneously rejoice because we know that this life is not all that there is. Our, our hope is not anchored to this life, but it is anchored to eternal realities. And so our, our conversation can and should be marked by a joy-filled hope in eternal realities. That's just one application where this plays out, but I think it's a helpful illustration for us to think about, does joy mark our life? Okay, so this is the first command. We'll spend more time on this one than, than we do on the next two, but let's go to the next one. The next command he gives is to pray without ceasing. The, the second verse that wins you a piece of candy. All right, pray without ceasing. A familiar command but one that's easily misunderstood, as if the impression is we are to be praying all the time without ever a break for dinner or for sleep or anything like that, right? So how do we understand what it means to pray without ceasing? Well, it's helpful to look at the, just in First Thessalonians, how Paul uses this word without ceasing, sometimes translated as constantly, right? So i got to get back to 1 Thessalonians, so give me a second here. Um, so he says in chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, that's 1 Timothy. Okay, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says this, We give thanks to God always for you. And here's this, this phrase without ceasing. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Well, no one would get the impression that every time Paul prays, he always mentions the Thessalonians. Okay, I'm sure he mentions other things. But the Thessalonians were a prominent theme in his prayers. So it's, it would be a habit of Paul's to, to mention the Thessalonians and, and how God was at work in their lives. Skip over to chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, And we also thank God, and here's this word without ceasing or constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So Paul's not saying that every time we pray, we thank the Lord that you received the word not as the word of man, but what it is, the word of God. And every time we pray, we mention that particular reality. No, that's not what Paul's saying. But it was, a, it was something that they were continuously joyful about that that they had received the word in this way, and so they constantly mentioned it or habitually mentioned it in their prayers. Right? So if you've ever played sports and you had a coach, you will remember that your coach told you things repeatedly. So our coach always told us when they're, when they're doing a full-court press, don't dribble 
through the press. But get the ball to the middle, and you can beat the press much more effectively with the pass. Or when they're inbounding the ball underneath the hoop, nothing is to be passed into the middle. Okay? You, you shut the middle down. And a coach might say something like this, I constantly tell them, or without ceasing, I tell them, and then repeat the instruction. But no one to get the impression that those are the only instructions he gives, or that every time he gives instructions, those are part of his instructions. What he means is, this is something that is consistent in his instruction, that he teaches them this. So when Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing, here's what he's really saying. That the believer is to be marked by a consistent life of prayer. Not that they never break from prayer to eat dinner or to talk to someone else or to rest at night. But the believer's general general trajectory of life is that they are consistent in prayer. So as we encounter difficulty, our response is to be a prayer for help. We encounter the temptations during our day. Our response is to pray for a way to escape. When we experience blessings, our response is to be a prayer of thanksgiving. When we sin, our response is to be a prayer of repentance. And when we need help, a cry and plea for help from our Lord. And as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, hopefully we grow in such a way that our natural and consistent part of our day is, is prayer. But it's not that we pray all the time. It's that we're marked by consistency in prayer. As the old hymn describes it, prayer is the Christian's vital breath and native air. But that's to be the mark of our life is consistent prayer before the Lord. There's an indicting statement. I don't know who, who made it, but it says something to the effect of this, our, our spiritual health, the, the, the true barometer of our spiritual health, is marked by the fervency of our prayer. Like most other Christian virtues can be, can be faked or done in our own power to some degree or another, but not prayer. The consistency of our prayer is the real barometer of, of, of our spiritual health. And so we want it to be constant and consistent and growing in these things. Well, lastly, let's turn our attention to the third one, and I'll move quickly through this. He says, we are to give thanks in all circumstances. So we get to this one, and we're like exhausted by this point, because we've already listened to one impossible command, rejoice always, and another impossible command, pray without ceasing. Now it's like, man, I've got to do something else that's impossible, give thanks in all circumstances. And yet, this is what the Lord is cultivating in our life. And notice what he does say and what he doesn't say. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. He doesn't say, give thanks for all circumstances. Okay, the reality is that in every situation in life, we can have something to be thankful for, but not every situation in life we're thankful for. Okay, there are, are hardships and loss that the Lord brings on our path that we're genuinely not thankful for, but, but even in the midst of those, we can be thankful to the Lord because we always have something to be thankful to the Lord for. Right? The reality is that every situation of life, we have received more than we deserve. 
So we came into this life as rebellious sinners, deserving of eternal condemnation, and, and God was patient to allow us time to repent. And, and while we were in our unbelief, he still allowed us to enjoy the blessings of life and his common grace that he gives. We didn't deserve that, but we are, we're thankful for it. And then he graciously saved us from our sin and has blessed us beyond all measure of what we deserve. So no matter what circumstances we have in life, we have much to be thankful for. But there are some reasons why thankfulness often eludes us. And I'll just mention two. The first is forgetfulness. Okay, we go through our life, and it's easy for us to forget the blessings that we have received. This was Israel's problem. So they're just about to enter the promised land, and, and they've experienced a, a tremendous, tremendous exodus out of Egypt. And God's giving them this promised land of, of milk and honey and all of their, the blessings that come with it. And so the Lord gives them this warning before they head into the promised land. Listen carefully. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he goes on to give them this warning. Beware, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. But this is us, right? We forget the blessings that the Lord has given us, and so thankfulness eludes us. Forgetfulness, but the second one is pride. Pride is a, is a, is a cause of a lack of thanksgiving. So in, in pride, we have kind of one or two responses to the things that the Lord has given us. Number one, we have what we have because we've earned it. Or the reverse side of that is we have what we have because we think we deserve it. Okay, but in either case, pride is the expression of our heart and leads to unthankfulness. So we can't forget, and we must be humble if we're to cultivate this thanksgiving in all circumstances. Now, as we conclude, let me give one final thought here. There is a sense in which the three things that are mentioned in this passage— rejoicing, faithful prayer, and thankfulness, that these three serve as something of an antidote to a number of other sins, okay? So where there is a lack of joy, there is often complaint and despair. Where there is a lack of prayer, we know this clearly, there is anxiety and worry, where there is a lack of thanksgiving, there is a, a discontentment with what we have. But a pursuit of these things, joy and prayer and, and thanksgiving, they are the antidote to this, 
life of despair, a life of anxiety, a life of discontentment. And we find these to be God's key to, to, to obedience and, and walking with him with a, with a joyful heart. So this Thanksgiving season, let these aspects mark your inner man. Consistent joy, faithful prayer, thanksgiving in all circumstances. And here's my encouragement one week ahead. Next Sunday night, we have the opportunity to gather for our pie and praise. And we're thankful for pie, right? Pie is good, okay? But we, we have this opportunity. And what I'd like you to ask you to do as a congregation is to prepare ahead of time so that you just write a, a handful of things down so that when we do have our service, you come ready to share those, those praises and those matters of thanks. Because what typically happens is, it's like, oh, shoot, I was supposed to think of something, and now, like, I'm on the spot, and now I'm going to stand up and say something, and I'm really not prepared, okay? Take some time this week to reflect on how, God, how good God has been to you. And come ready next week to, to share and encourage one another in the Lord by how good God has been to us. Okay, so what we learn in this passage is this. It's God's will for believers that they be marked by constant joy, prayer, and thanksgiving in all circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we're amazed at the instructions you give sometimes that seem so contrary to what our natural feelings are. But in your grace, you're, you're working these things out in our life so that we are marked by joy and prayer and, and thanksgiving. And these are sometimes hard realities to swallow. But then we realize it's only by your grace and help that we can obey these things. Lord, there's a lot to despair in our world Frankly, there's a lot to despair of in our lives. But we rest in the fact that our joy is connected to eternal realities and not present circumstances. And in that, we can rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in all circumstances, give thanks. Help us, we pray, to honor you and through this passage. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing He Leadeth.